0: Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have Late Night Jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, a podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat where we have conversations with dynamic musicians in our world. My name is Sebastian Vera and I'm joined as always by Nick Schwartz. What's up Nick? We have a podcast. I've been
1: casting all day. Day.
0: Hashtag casting. So, yeah, we, we've kind of wanted to do this for a while, and we're very excited about it, and we have a lot of amazing people we're going to talk to. But we've always had these conversations and bars and hanging out with, with friends, and uh, we just always thought it would be really cool to start recording these. So, who do we talk to today, Nick? We talk
1: to Denson Paul Pollard. Dr. Dr. Denson. Denson Paul Pollard. aliases Denny P. Denson, D two P two, Doctor P, Doctor Pollard. I th- did I get them all? Is that it? I don't know. I mean, he has a lot of aliases. Oh, so Lieutenant complicated... Lieutenant Dan, Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan. Of course, that's a story for another day. I believe. <laughs> yeah, those are all of his aliases. Uh, oh, oh yeah, oh one more. Denny P, the choice for me. This is <laughs> the one
0: I like a lot. It ended up being, and we we of course know Paul really well. He's come to the retreat twice now. And, of course, Nick gets to play with him a lot in New York um, But we had a really cool talk uh, We talked kind of about his unconventional path to where he is And, you know, he didn't go to major schools And, and he, he did a lot of different things Like tour for 18 months with Broadway musicals Lived in Hong Kong, played, uh, did time in Finland um, But, yeah, it's a really good talk Did and time in Finland Did time, it's hard, hard, did time hard time in Finland <laughs> Up in the Baltics
1: it's a, it's a, it's a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did time in Finland oh, Sorry, I got caught up on that one That's good um, No, but the, yeah, you, you know, from the from the rivers of Georgia To the mountains of Southeast Asia He's done
0: it all I thought you were about to go give a speech
1: Oh, yeah, all it's right. true Actually, it sounded very patriotic, I know But, you know, we're patriotic, aren't we, Seb?
0: Yeah, I think so Well, without any further ado Here is Denson Paul Pollard.
1: Thank you for joining
2: us, Dr. Denson Paul Pollard. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. I love podcasts. I love trombone. I love me some Nick Schwartz, so it's all my favorite things, just kind of combined into one. What is Sebastian? Is he chopped liver? Yeah. Well, I'm sitting here looking at Nick. I can't think about anything else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Dr. Denson, Paul Pollard, and Nick are both wearing white T-shirts, and they match for, I guess it's the sweltering uh, New York City winter.
2: Yeah, my uh, my apartment's like 95 degrees with zero percent oh, humidity. It's yeah. as dry as it gets. Yeah, it's, like a,
0: it's like
1: a Siberian sauna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try not to be too distracted. Uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us on our our very first podcast and 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 thanks for uh, hanging in with us while we try to figure out what we're doing. But yeah, we we quickly jumped to wa- wanting to talk to you first. You've been someone that's been to the retreat twice. So, I guess you get that merit badge. That's 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 a that's a big deal. But I think we Nick and I we both know you. But I don't think everyone knows you, and we want to kind of get to know you from kind of your musical beginnings and and go into your career and and some of your philosophies and and just, you know, wherever we want to go. But so I guess we could just, you want to just start at the beginning?
2: The beginning. So,
0: yeah, (laughs) he was born on a warm Tuesday. Well,
2: even before that, I've heard it was a pretty nice night in Georgia in 1969. About nine nine mm, months before you were born. February, February 1969. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a little cool outside. Yeah, um, it, was, it
1: was getting on the summer of love. You yeah, that's so, right. That's yeah. right. You were born. The, you were born the summer of love, then, huh? I was oh, born in 1970. Oh, I'm I'm good
2: at math. I can oh, has man. <laughs> huh.
0: But the summer. Oh, so that makes it that makes it super easy to remember how old you that's are. That's
2: right. Yeah, you got a nice round number. I'm, I'm uh, pushing towards 50. Shockingly. Any big plans? My wife wants to have a party, so I'm, I'm sure something like that's going to happen. <laughs>
0: so we grew up in. You grew up in Georgia.
2: Yeah, I'm from a really small town in Georgia, and uh, started playing. I guess the point of this podcast really is trombone, and uh, I started playing the trombone when I was 10 years old, and I, I began playing probably the way uh, many, most people actually from Georgia uh, start a musical instrument through high school band, and uh, it was it was kind of an accident really, because uh, at the t- when I was 10 years old, I was really involved in sports and. I played a lot of baseball, a lot of uh, basketball, a lot of football, and I showed up one day to school with my best friend, and I saw that they were having instrument trials, band instrument trials, which I had, had given zero thought to. I didn't even know it was happening, but my buddy wanted to just go into the room and just kind of see what was happening, so I just kind of followed him in there, and we got to try all the instruments, and obviously the trombone was very different from all the others, and it had a slide, which I uh, was immediately drawn to. and Wound up choosing the trombone and starting the trombone in fifth grade. And from uh, there, continued. Uh, played in jazz band. Played in uh, marching band, of course, quite a bit. And band was kind of the focus of my life through high school. My, my friends were all band kids. And my aspiration after high school, my, my, my goal in life was to be a band director. And uh, so uh, I applied to one school. It turned out to be a, a very good application, uh, this little school in Alabama, Jacksonville State University in Jacksonville, Alabama. Had a really great teacher there, a guy, a guy named uh, Jim Roberts, who retired recently. And uh, this little school, interestingly, although it was, in, uh, it was in the foothills of Appalachia in Alabama, the, the faculty were all former military band players from a lot of different parts of the country that had kind of gotten jobs at this little school. And my teacher, Jim Roberts, was from Massachusetts. He was my first uh, encounter with a Yankee uh, at the time. <laughs> but, uh, now you're uh, surrounded by him. Yeah, that's right. He he wore like he wore shoes <laughs> and He was you know, even at the time I realized he was a little he and like, several of the other faculty members didn't quite fit into the landscape of Alabama in a lot of ways, but uh, they were very educated about music and my first lesson with Jim Roberts at Jacksonville State University, he, he put on a, a recording of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra playing pictures at an exhibition. It just blew my mind. To be The honest truth is, and I know this is hard to believe these days with the internet, with YouTube, you can basically see or hear anything you want to hear these days. At that time, when I was a 17-year-old freshman, music ed major at Jacksonville State University, I had never heard an orchestra. I'd never even seen a string well, instrument be played live. I'd seen probably on television here or there. But I had no idea that that life or that vocation existed. So my first lesson, this my teacher, Jim Roberts, puts on this recording, it blew my mind, and I immediately said, Whoa, what is that? I want to do that. How do I do this? And I'm, I'm sure he didn't take me very seriously, but he introduced me to some (laughs) excerpts, and and I was a tenor trombone player at the time. Yeah, I I started working on excerpts. I still remember seeing Bolero for the first time and thinking, oh my gosh, first of all, what is that crazy clef there? And once he explained that to me, I thought, how in the world does anybody play a high B-flat and a high D-flat on the trombone? That's impossible.
0: Well, we we, we still think that when we see Bolero. (laughs) That's a very normal (laughs) thing. Okay, you're in the Metropolitan Opera. I imagine the majority of your colleagues didn't have a path similar to yours at all. Not deciding, not even knowing about orchestra until getting to college, not going to a big conservatory or traditionally prestigious music school, even though these are great schools. Sounds like you probably didn't have any like orchestral background in high school, obviously. So did, how did this affect your kind of mentality when you decided that, okay, this is what I want to do. How did you get confidence and not feel like you're like behind? Or did you ever feel like that?
2: Well, I, I agree. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a complete outlier uh, when it comes to career path. You know, I don't know anybody else in, in my circle that has, uh, has had the same road. And uh, you're exactly right. I did feel like I was behind. You know, After I started working on excerpts and uh, learned about the audition process, and I went to my first audition and realized I was by far the worst player at this audition. As I heard people warm up, and I was a little, I was dismayed by that. But uh, you know, I'm fortunate. I, my parents are blue collar people, and they had, uh, they had instilled in me the idea that if, if you want to do something, if you want to achieve a goal, if you want to reach some, some goal you have, if you just work hard enough, you can achieve that goal. And Rather than be squashed by the fact that I was a horrible trauma player at the time, I just thought, you know what? I'm just I'm gonna set I'm gonna kind of put together a pattern of improvement, a daily improvement in my life. I'm not gonna think too much about the fact that I'm that I'm horrible. I'm just gonna every day try to do things to improve, and that's just kind of what I did. And I uh, kind of put put my head down, did the things I was told to do by my teacher, and uh, I guess probably five or six. 5 or 6 years later I started to kind of have some success at auditions. You strike you strike me as someone that that's not that has the the mentality we want
0: to put into our students of, of just not being afraid to fail. And it seems like you had great parents that really instilled that kind of just like focus on the work, don't worry about the results. Keep your exactly. Head down. That
2: you know that that's I, I would I would say that's that's probably the mentality of a lot of you know a lot of people from you know the Bible Belt. You know, just wake up every morning, do do honest work, go home at night, and just be happy with what you've done that day. Uh, but I can say, you know, losing was kind of devastating for me. Honestly, going to auditions, not advancing, realizing that I was not a great trombone player, it was it was not fun. I did, I really did not like that, and I, that's probably part of the reason why I just worked really 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 hard to not be the worst one to, to try to at least advance and uh, but no it's it, it was it was not fun uh, to drive long distances to work really hard to spend money on hotel rooms to on flights and and not advance that that was the worst but you know as I said eventually I started to see little successes here and there I actually won my first audition. I remember this, I was at uh, the summer of, uh, it was probably the summer of, summer of 1992, I was at the Sewanee Summer Music Center, which was the, the, the summer festival that was closest to where I grew up in Georgia, it's Sewanee, Tennessee, it was a beautiful, beautiful campus, they, they host uh, a the lady, Martha McCrory, who was formerly in the cello section of the Cleveland Orchestra, for some reason she had chosen that campus to start this summer music festival, a lot, of, a lot of people from the South attended there. And I was there, and someone passed an AFM uh, newspaper to me that advertised auditions. I kind of skipped over a little bit of uh, uh, some some important details. I'd started playing bass trombone while I was an undergrad in jazz band. I was playing tenor trombone in the concert band, and the symphonic band, and marching band. I was playing bass trombone in jazz band, so I was kind of doing both a little bit. And when I was at Swanee... I saw an advertisement for what was then the Cedar Rapids Symphony Orchestra in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and they were advertising principal trombone and bass trombone. And I thought, wow, that, that would be a chance to take two locations at the same time. That's right. Yeah. you know. Yachty. <laughs> it was, uh, was going to involve uh, a 15-hour drive in, in a 1979 Toyota Celica with 200,000 miles on it, but uh if that car could talk <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how i i don't know how i did it but i uh had no money i i, I drove there I, I wound up sleeping in a used car dealership parking lot just sleeping in my car no. cause i just kind of drove in and kind of blended into the cars halfway <laughs> there and uh drove to iowa i, I mean i had rarely been out of the South, but I, I drove, drove to Iowa and, uh, the, uh, the bass drum on audition was first in the day. So I warmed up really well on bass drum on, played the audition. They did not announce a winner and then picked up my tenor, warmed up and played not, not as good of an audition, uh, on tenor because I was, you know, my chops were kind of ready for bass. And, uh, after it was all said and done, they, they couldn't, I mean, the truth is they could not believe this kid from Alabama had drove up there and, and played, played that well. And uh, I didn't know this, but I was told at the time, uh, the proctor said, well, may, maybe you should have this kid play again because it's really not who you think it is. So they brought oh, so the they, had, they had someone well. in mind. They had someone in mind, oh. actually. And uh, I'll mention mm. this, this person because he, he was kind of influential as well, this guy named Max Bonecutter. To, uh, <laughs> what that,
1: Oh man, you are destined. Oh you are either destined to be a surgeon, like doing amputations. That's right. Or, or playing trombone and kind of doing metaphorical amputations <laughs> in a way.
2: Max Max was was a really active player, uh, probably in the I think the seventies and eighties. As a matter of fact, I know I know he was bass trombonist of the Metropolitan Opera for one season. He also played with the Chicago Symphony a little bit, oh. and he was bass trombonist of the Minnesota Orchestra. And he's a person that. He was kind of a rolling stone. He would get a job and kind of get tired of, uh, kind of get tired of the job quickly and move on to something else. And he had just come out of being a forest ranger. He had he'd left music and done. He, he he was a forest ranger and decided he wanted to teach. And so he would applied for this job in Iowa, University of Northern Iowa. I would teach for a while eventually uh, after after a few years as well. But Max was the guy who they thought had played the audition. So they they brought me back out and I played my I, my solo was a Bordoni down an octave, and uh, they had me play my Bordoni again <laughs> and my excerpts and they said, well, you know, I guess we're gonna have to give this kid a try and uh, I was I was as shocked as they were honestly, but uh, it was a great thing. I drove back to Alabama. I had one semester left of my music ed degree. Did you I did
1: went- you sleep in? a used car lot again on the way uh, back down Alabama? I can't
2: remember probably I probably did I probably drove straight through. I was so excited.
1: I just imagine you in like a like a big boy in uh in somewhere in Ohio asking can I have some grits kind of like Tiny Tim or something <laughs> like that <laughs> and they're like grits what are grits?
2: It, you know <laughs> it would have I would have had to have been because I have to tell you I had zero money I mean I was so I, I mean Typical artist musician story. I had zero money, man. You know, it was probably part, all I could do to scrape up money to buy gas to get up there.
0: Part of you, did part of you kind of thrive on that kind of underdog mentality, like how people were kind of perceiving you as this person coming from Alabama out of nowhere and just kind of proving people wrong.
2: Definitely, I had a chip on my shoulder. Really, I really really did about that, and that that kind of stays with you. Honestly, I don't think I I don't think. I was talking to a buddy about this the other day. There's a little part of inside of me. I will always be a kid from a small town in Georgia. So yeah, I had a chip on my shoulder and probably still do a little bit. (laughs) No. So how, so how do you,
0: (laughs) so how do you reconcile that with now you've achieved in, in, you know, in our career path, you know, there's always more you can do, but For lack of a better word, I mean, you're about as successful as you can be, but you have that underdog mentality. How do you satisfy that drive and desire?
2: You know, I mean, at this point, do you know the concept of, uh, I I think it's Freudian, we're all, we're born and we kind of have this this dragon mentality where we're going to go out, we're going to slay the world. And when you do that, when you achieve a lot of your dreams, you get to the point, you kind of get over that hump and you become childlike and just... Satisfied and comfortable, and you know, I, I think that's where I am right now. Even though I still have projects that that I want to do and I'm involved in, and I'm, you know, I, I still like to play and I still practice a lot every day. You know, at this point, I've reached I've reached a point of satisfaction where it's I'm not really striving to achieve. I'm just enjoying what I do at this point. It's less about proving something it's less about achieving a career goal it's more about just enjoying enjoying where i am like a child really and that's that's kind of where i am at this point well before we get too close to where you are right now i think
1: we should back up to so you win this cedar rapids job right And so you graduate you graduate from jacksonville state and then what i mean i know i know and you know, people can go on your IMDb page now, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so, what 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 happens? Where do you go? Uh, well, uh, I get to Iowa, and uh, again, I have that one semester left on my music ed degree, which I really want. I really want to finish my degree, and uh, I wind up I wind up student teaching in Iowa at a really great high school with a couple of really great band directors who also played in the area, which helped me kind of get to know a lot of the freelance players in Iowa. While at the same time, I somehow managed to get the job as the librarian for this orchestra and the secretary for their Suzuki School, which, uh, again, this is this is wild, but it really is the truth. At the time, the Suzuki, Suzuki School that was being run by the Cedar Rapids Symphony had been written up in Time magazine as a model for the country for how to how to create music education programs around the United States, it was being run by our, a, a lady named uh, Doris Prussel. And if you know that name, her son she has a very famous son who was in the Cleveland court. Uh, he was in the, he was in a very famous quartet, and he was concertmaster of the Cleveland Orchestra. And so uh, I was the secretary at the school, so I I started to develop a. a you know, a deep understanding of string playing and, and uh, a lot of different things doing that. I, was, I became the librarian of the orchestra, learned about string bowings and, and how that all that happened. So I was doing all of that at the same time. And uh, finished my. so I finished my music ed degree. I did my student teaching there. And uh, the University of Iowa, which was in Iowa City, about a half hour drive south of Cedar Rapids, I got to know the trombone teachers there, uh, John Hill and George Krem. They needed some grad trombone players, and there was a TA position open, and so I, you know, it just kind of seemed to make sense to play in this, do this per service orchestra gig, and do a master's degree at University of Iowa, and that's what I did. My, and I was at the beginning, I was the, uh, I was a musicology TA for uh, a lady named Diana Gannett, the double bass teacher there, who, ev- who eventually moved on to teach at University of Michigan, but uh, so I was musicology, musicology TA for a year. I was the jazz TA for a year, where I ran the the number two jazz band and taught an intro to jazz uh, improvisation course, and uh, finished my master's degree doing those two things, and uh, wound up uh, kind of at the end of my master's degree. This was this was kind of a wild time. I got married uh, during the course of my master's degree. My wife Karen moved uh, from Alabama, where she had finished her music ed degree, to Iowa. We got married. Finished, finished my master's degree and uh, was offered a job in the Naples Philharmonic in Naples, Florida. This guy named Mike Zion, who I think is still the principal. He yeah, still he be is. There. He's still principal.
1: Then.
2: So uh, we decided to move to Naples, Florida. So I was going to play in that orchestra. So we packed up our stuff once again. At that time, we'd upgraded from my Celica to we had a Geo Prism. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so uh, I the, uh, those. everything we could fit inside of a Geo Prism. We moved from. Uh, <laughs> so
1: two suitcases and a. Yeah. Not much, man. Like a Chihuahua? I mean, yeah. Basically, you a yeah, yeah, you're one mouthpiece. Yeah. Uh,
2: it, was, it was packed. Uh, we moved to Naples, Florida. We were in Naples for, I think we were in Naples for six weeks. And I got a call from uh, someone I had met at a, a music festival on behalf of a show, a touring Broadway show, and they needed someone that could play bass and tenor to go on the road with this show. It paid... Uh, it paid for what, at that time, was a lot of money to me. And it was going to be, it was an open-ended situation. It was going to be a different city each week. It wasn't a bus bus and truck tour. It was a flying tour. So we were going to fly to a different city each week. It was an Andrew Lloyd Webber review kind of show. And I, I. it was a tough decision, but I just said, you know what? I got to take this. This just sounds like too much fun. I'm going to be making too much money. Yeah. And so we left Florida. After six weeks, we broke our lease. We rented an apartment. We broke our lease. Uh, I put put my car in storage, and my wife and I both actually wound up going on the road with this show for two years. My wife was a nanny for one of the lead singers on the show who had a son on on the show. What was that experience Uh, like? It was, well, you know, honestly, I didn't realize at the time how awesome it was. It really, I mean, these these kinds of shows just don't really exist anymore. It was, we made... Back in my day... I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, it really was. We made a ton of money. I got to see the. I got to see North America. Uh, it was. Yeah. Uh, I got to. My wife was with me. You know. I got. I. The rest of the band. I was by far the youngest person in the band. The rest of the band were all veterans of Woody Herman Big Band, the Stan Kenton Big Band, Buddy Rich. Uh, I mean, so I was around a whole bunch of incredibly seasoned musicians, and it really, it really was awesome. Having said that, we were on the road for close to two years. I played the same music over six hundred times, and you know, when they finally when they finally told us the show was ending, we were all kind of sad that our job was ending, but at the same time, we were like, "Oh, thank goodness, I don't have to play this music anymore." You know, it was so it was uh, mentally exhausting. You know, uh, one very cool thing I did to kind of uh, create connections was in every town we went to, I called up the trombone players in town to ask if I could have a lesson, if we could play duets. So, I mean, I took lessons from every known player that would actually see me uh, over the course of their season. So would this
1: be like, you know, like, are you talking about every town? like, if you're in, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska,
2: would you, like, try to find out who's in Lincoln, Nebraska, or Omaha, or wherever? Right. Um, We weren't in in towns that small. Uh, Usually it was, I mean, they were major cities, usually, you know. Boston, some, Philadelphia. Some more like Cedar Rapids, Iowa. <laughs> we were we're bringing we bringing it back around. <laughs> yeah, we're, we, I mean, I mean, mostly large large cities. Uh, I mean, we played Vegas. I was in uh, I was in residence in Vegas twice for like six weeks at a time. This was pre-poker. Uh, I didn't play yeah, poker I, back then. I was going to say now, that would probably be the end oh, of you. That's my dream.
1: <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> to be in a residence. In pr- playing a show. Crushed velour track suits. Waking up at 4 p.m. every day.
0: <laughs> but at that time, at that time, how did you go about contacting all these people when you showed up to a new city? I would,
2: If there was a union, I would call the union and uh, ask for phone numbers that way. If anybody on the band knew somebody in the town, I would just cold call them and you know, just make phone calls. This was pre-internet. No, nobody, th- I mean, we live, we, this show, exi- we existed in a real bubble. This was pre-internet, uh, or at least nobody had a personal computer. They probably existed at that time, but they're way more expensive than, th- than we could afford. Nobody had email. So it was all just basically phone calls, and I would just call everybody. And it was hilarious because, I, I mean, I could totally, I totally get it now, but at the time I was perplexed with occasionally get the response, oh, you must be young. You must be some young kid. Really? Somebody calling me up to just play duets, uh, you you got to be young. There's no way an older, grizzled uh, musician would be on the road for two years would be calling up people to play duets. Oh, you know? <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying.
1: So this is something that Sebastian and I both are constantly, I don't know, preaching, I suppose, at the retreat. So anyone who's been there will know, or anyone who's studied with us will know. And I, I th- obviously you're a proponent of the same... Uh, mentality, which is you know, students who are trying to get out and make a name for themselves, trying to get out into a community in any way, shape, or form, they're not uh, reaching out to the people who are actually working. You know, they're not um, doing the cold calls like you were doing. You know, you had an opportunity. You were on the road for two years, and you were in a different city. What? How often? Every couple weeks. Every uh, week. The, we had the occasional long-term stay, but it was usually a city per week. Right. But even still, people who are planted in whatever city, getting out of college, they don't make the cold calls to people. So on that note, did you ever receive kind of, who is this? No, I'm not going to do this. People who are an- not angry, but
2: really put off that you cold called them. Did you ever receive that from someone? Not, not really. You know, no no one was... Uh... I wouldn't say anybody was put off by a, a complete stranger calling them. They were oftentimes a little bit, again, uh, perplexed that someone would go to that effort. But yet, you know, I met every, I have to say, I met every kind of musician doing that. I met musicians that were really nice, motivated, generous. I met uh, i met musicians that obviously just wanted my, wanted my money and didn't really care about giving me any kind of knowledge. Mm. I heard musicians... I heard trombone players that sounded great. I heard trombone players that I I thought would sound great that didn't sound great. It was doing that was a complete. Who? <laughs> Which ones? We want names. Yeah. You know, that that's a podcast for another time. <laughs> no, but- I,
1: I, I, the reason I bring this up is I think that that's the fear of, of young students is picking up the mm-hmm. phone and doing that cold call. I mean, it, you know, it's not a cold call anymore. It's usually a cold text or a cold email, but the the, the principle is still the same. And that's something we tr- we try to drive home is like, hey, don't be afraid. What's the worst? Th-? The worst thing that's gonna happen is say, hey, I'm I'm too busy. You know, call me back in three months. I mean, I
2: can't imagine. You know, a person that would get angry with a stranger that calls up and says, uh, "Hi, Mr. Schwartz. My name is uh, My name is Denson Paul Pollard. I'm in the area." Tour what kind of name is that? <laughs> Uh, don't you know who i am yeah
0: sorry don't look exactly. in the <laughs> eyes
1: sorry sorry I, I ruined your momentum that's okay uncle, right. uncle moe was in town and i just yeah shoved him out the door
0: swatted him away yeah.
1: i mean so, yeah i can't imagine that either i mean who who that that's the thing we try to say and you know i i understand the fear of uh of putting it's putting yourself out there you know because you're call, calling someone up to say hey can I play for you?
2: With respect, with humility, willing to pay, not yeah. not assuming any, not assuming anything about the situation. You know, I mean, I had I had an experience just today where I was I was speaking to a, a student called, and they they said they called me Pollard. They said, "What's up, Pollard?" And, and ooh, you know, a try again. I didn't. <laughs> you know, I didn't call them out. You know, I you know I'm not a person that 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 does that. I probably should be more, but I just thought, man, that. That just came across so disrespectfully. I would never, I would never have called up a, a, a player, a teacher, uh, and 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 called them just like that. You know, it remind it actually reminded me of when that student called Bobby Knight and said, "What's up, Knight?" and Knight Knight choked them on the campus of Indiana University. <laughs> the kid wound up getting choked. You know, I mean, uh, but uh, you know, when I called people, it was it was with res- with respect, with humility, with uh, an assumption that I was going to pay them for their time and. Try to try to let them know really quickly that hey, I just want to learn. I, I you know I want to I want to know what you know. I yeah. want to hear what you can do so I can try to do it. And yeah. but yeah, I don't. I mean, if I were a student today, the way I mean is it's so easy to contact people. I would I would totally be doing that. You know. Uh,
1: and I think the assumption is too that you know the professionals their phone is ringing off the hook with people every day wanting to play from. And while people are calling, I mean, I would say it's a relatively it's more rare than they would assume that someone's calling you to say, hey, can I play for you? It's not rare, but it's not like you have a line of 60 people waiting to play for you to try to get work in a city like New York, even, you know, which is the busiest music scene in the United States or the world. And so, yeah, I just, I just wanted to stay in that, in that that on that topic for a second because I think that's pretty interesting. You went everywhere and had all these lessons and, you know, different experiences and...
2: Learned a lot. You know? Something that you and I talked about one time that I think about constantly are is this idea of an instinct, an instinct for surviving and being successful in the music business. You know, it just—I mean, my instinct was, you know, if if I want to get better, if I want to be successful, if I want to achieve these goals I have, I I need to do this. I right. I need to know how people play. I need to I need to try to get as much knowledge mm-hmm. as I can. That yeah. was my instinct and. Yeah, I, I did it without reservation. I mean, these days, if I were a student these days, honest, I would be contacting people and saying, "Hey, could I could I pay you for a Skype lesson?" Yeah, and
1: it, I think most people wait until they're out of school to start contacting people and my I'm always saying, "You got to start when you're like a junior, you know, to really start reaching out there because in, it it takes a while for these relationships to bloom if they ever do." You know, it's not going to be like I just met you and it's like you want a gig oh, here's a gig you know it's like
0: or they think they they have to have the complete product together right. or you have to be at your 100 before i play for this yeah. person worst case scenario they're they're going to be like oh well thank you but i'm i'm a little too busy to hear anybody right now I mean, that's the worst case scenario i
1: mean shout out to uh tuba player that i sit next to all the time dan dan peck he was a freelancer here in new york and um he is a Tuba player, obviously, but a bass player too. And he, before he got the ballet job, he was actually playing the show at Chicago, which is a tuba and bass double. So, when he first got out of school, he was, you know, saying, "Okay, what am I gonna, what am I gonna be doing? Uh, how am I gonna make a living?" And so he decided just to cold call people, both bass and tuba, and he created a spreadsheet of, you know, when he contacted this person, when they were meeting, or if they weren't meeting what the reason was and if they gave a specific timeline on when to call back. So it was like last called six months ago. So he would look look and say, you know, I, I should probably give them another call. You know, just like they said, they would just say, oh, you know, can you just try, give me, try back in a couple months. I'm just going through a crazy time right now. And so he'd give it, you know, three, four months and call him back and say, hey, you know, can we, let's try this again. And he said, you know, sometimes it took three or four tries just to make a connection of meeting up or a cup of coffee or whatever or playing, or whatever that may be. But I mean, that diligence, that's what got him to where he was in talking about the survival, the survival instinct in music, you know? I, it's, that's that to me, that that's a sign of someone who's not gonna give up and just say, oh, oh, oh well, didn't work. The world's against me, or something like that,
0: you know? Kind of, kind of along that vein, I'm kind of curious, during that, you said, two-year experience, what were the challenges with just practicing? Or were oh yeah.
2: You know, when you're, uh, I spent a lot of time in car parks, spent a lot of time in hotel, uh, uh, staircases. I, I, I managed to do it all every day. I never skipped a day of practice. And if I had to go in a park, if I had to go outside in a park, you know, I would do that, you know, and I tell my students about this, you know, every night we'd be in the hotel room after the show. My wife would be asleep, and we'd have, you know, David Letterman on or something like that with the volume kind of turned up to a normal volume, and I would practice soft playing underneath mm. the, the David Letterman show. So, you know, if there's a will, there's a way, and, you know, I always found a way to practice. Uh, you know, again, I was by far the youngest person on the show. I'm sure some of my colleagues thought, man, well, that kid, I wish that kid would stop practicing all the time, you know? I, I usually try, I tried to do it in, in, a, in an area where they couldn't hear me, but... Yeah, car parks out in out in a park near the hotel the stairwells of the hotels. If they had a banquet room, if you want it bad enough, you can find a place to practice on the road. Okay, so let's move on. You want? To yeah, move on from... I think
1: I think uh, you know we've got a, a good picture of you know young Denson coming up in the world. <laughs> I'm, I imagine. By the way, I, I wanted to ask this about ten minutes ago, fifteen minutes ago. So you're talking about you know the mid early nineties. When was it that you were in Cedar Rapids?
2: This would have been 1993. On a For skip, the first time. On a
1: scale from David Hasselhoff to Patrick Swayze, how long was your mullet? <laughs> You've seen pictures, huh? I just assumed. It, I, I imagine you had a nice Kentucky waterfall going on.
2: I had a, I had a really nice... You know, I, I actually marched drum corps in 1990 before the Iowa the Iowa period. Oh, and man. I moved to San Francisco, California and walked uh, marched the Blue Devils uh, drum corps. And what? everybody had a mullet in the Blue Devils at that time. And I had a really nice one. Had an earring. Had really oh. had a really nice hundred dollar pair of sunglasses, and boy, I was. Tan. Do you have a picture? Oh of this? yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah!
0: Okay, please send it to us, and we'll put it exactly. up on our, our I Instagram because that is. I think is we're going to make a
1: retreat calendar, you know, and they're all just going to be pictures of you with various lengths of mine. <laughs>
2: it was awesome it was I, I got rid of it you know pretty soon after i got back from california again i didn't fit in alabama that well with my earring and
1: that's my, kind of ironic because right now you'd probably fit in alabama really well with a mullet actually uh, maybe maybe just, maybe they're just like 20 years behind that's all <laughs> i go out, a 94 wait hold on that was almost 30 years ago no
2: please don't say that it was yeah i guess it was it was it was tw- 26 years ago right is that right I think you're right. Sadly, what? oh my gosh,
0: uh, did they have math classes at Juilliard? That's they absolutely do not. So,
1: yeah, no. I just I did it with my mental abacus, actually. So I think we can jump forward to like more of. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously, you're starting to get into the professional part of your career. You're doing this this uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber review tour. So from there, where where
2: do you go next? You know, uh, when the show ended, again there was no internet. We we had all completely lost track of the outside world, besides the occasional lesson here and there. The the show ended very abruptly. I didn't know what to do, so we went back to Iowa, actually. I Mm. went back and talked to my former teacher, and it turned out they had another TA position open at that time. The Cedar Rapids Symphony uh, had their bass trombone position open again. So I re-won that job and went back to do my doctorate at the University of Iowa, thinking, you know what, I'm going to go into college teaching. So I, I, I did my doctorate there. My dissertation was on the history of the bass trombone in big band jazz, which was so much fun to write. Finished my doctorate and applied for a university, a tenure-track university teaching position at the University of Northern Iowa, which I mentioned earlier. And at the same time that was going on, I also auditioned for the Hong Kong Philharmonic. I was playing in the Chicago Civic Orchestra. I was in Chicago, you know, three days out of the week. They had their regional audition in Chicago, so I... I auditioned for the Hong Kong Philharmonic, was, uh, was applying for college teaching positions, and won the Hong Kong Phil job and was offered this college teaching job. And the Hong Kong Phil job at the time, it was a sabbatical leave position. Phil Brink, uh, another very active player back in the day, was going to take a one-year leave of absence, and it was to fill his position. And it was a tough call, but you know what? I said, I've got to take, take the job that's going to be uh, this long-term stable and we were starting to think about having a family at that time. And uh, so I took the teaching job. But weirdly, I can't believe this happened, halfway through my first year of teaching, the Hong Kong Phil called and said, hey, Phil is, Phil Brink is not coming back to this job. It's, it's going to be a full-time position now. Would you like the job? And, oh, man, it was tough. I went to my, my dean at the time, and I said, look, I, I really want to take this playing job. I promise I'll come back. Just let me go play it for a year, and I'll come back to teach at University of Northern Iowa. My wife and I moved to Hong Kong, and we fell in love with that part of the world. And I just couldn't go back. One of the most difficult phone calls I've ever made was to that dean saying, I, "I'm not coming back. I'm sorry."
0: So, I mean, what a culture difference coming from Georgia, Alabama, Iowa—not—not not metropolises yeah, it, to Hong Kong. It was—I was don't understand what's the difference. Incredible.
2: It was incredible in every way. Uh, I, you know, I tell people I, I left a lot of my heart in Hong Kong. We, we love we loved, we still love that city. We're, the the food, the, it's the harbor, is the most beautiful harbor in the world. The proximity to places like Thailand, the Philippines, uh, it, it was just, it was incredible. And the orchestra sounded awesome. It's a great orchestra. Yeah, it's a great orchestra now, but it was a great orchestra then pre YAP as well. Uh, uh, so we, we moved there and, uh, my wife who's an elementary school teacher uh, got a great job at one of the better international schools in Hong Kong and so we had financially we were doing really really well. We had a full-time live-in domestic helper. I had a, I had a lady that lived with us that cooked, cleaned, bought our groceries. We had a couple of kids there took care of our kids while we were working. It was it, it was an idyllic life really. And I to be honest, I never thought I would leave. The fact that I'm sitting here right now you know, it was unimaginable you know, 15 years ago because I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in Hong Kong.
0: What was different about playing in a in an orchestra over there versus a typical orchestra here? Like as far as like work life and how the administration treats you? And-
2: well, the, you know, the Hong Kong Philharmonic, uh, Hong Kong was a British colony for many years, and the administration of the Hong Kong Philharmonic was uh, – it's. Was British. The system was British. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the way they scheduled rehearsals was was a little bit different. And, you know, the orchestra itself was was very international. There are a lot of people from the UK, but also people from Eastern Europe, a lot of Chinese, some Japanese. It was a really international orchestra, and it, it was my it was my first time time to be around a lot of those culturally those kinds of people, and uh, it was very interesting for me. So okay, so how long were you in Hong Kong? We were there we were there for six years okay and uh, if you're there for seven years you get your permanent resident visa which means you're a citizen of that city for life and uh, so we wow. were kind of look we we're, were looking forward to having that that visa so we wouldn't have to apply every year and we you know Hong Kong's great you get free health care your kids can go to university for basically free I mean it's a really advanced city so we're we're looking towards that seventh year and then one day once again you know, I wasn't really watching the magazines, but somebody comes to work and says, hey, did you hear the the Metropolitan Opera and the New York Philharmonic have bass drum positions open? And uh, I thought, hmm, you know, that's interesting. And at first, I, I mean, I just didn't even give it a second thought. You know, I thought, "Wow, well, that's pretty cool, but I didn't—I I wasn't, like, jumping on it. But I kind of started thinking about the fact that that's probably never going to happen again, that you can go to a city like New York and— you know, there are two major auditions happening in that city at the same time, and I thought, you know, i got to do this. i, I just got to try. You know, I'm going to regret if I don't at least try. I didn't think I was going to have a chance, honestly, because I didn't study. I didn't go to school here. I wasn't that in touch with, uh, with, with the people here. But I thought, you know what, I'm just I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. And, uh, you know, I'd gone to an Alessi seminar uh, in Nyack, New York, so I'd, and I'd had some lessons with Joe over the years, and so I kind of knew him. Who's Joe. And, what, excuse me? Who is Joe? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Joe Alessi. Uh, uh, so, uh, 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 yeah, so I, I, I kind of knew. Uh, I had a connection there. I'd had, I'd had a couple of lessons with uh, Stephen Norrell, who was the bass tromboneist of the Met at the time. I'd had some lessons with him on the road. So, yeah, I, I applied for both jobs, and that was a crazy year. I, I think I flew back and forth between New York and Hong Kong four times maybe uh, started in the prelims of the philharmonic job uh, advanced through again really surprisingly I was nervous as heck but just kept advancing and uh, wound up getting runner-up that was that was the most crushing that was that was probably the most crushing moment in my career is getting runner-up in the philharmonic and it was all I could do to not cry in front of uh, Lauren Mazel and Joe Lessie and Phil Smith and Phil Myers and Alan Baer I was on the verge of weeping, but I kept it together mm. and uh, I wanted to jump out of the airplane that, on the way back to Hong Kong.
0: It's that whole silver medalist thing. You know, it's, they say gold medalists are the happiest, bronze medalists are the, are the second happiest, and then the silver is just, you were so close and you know you were so close. That's just really it hard. Was,
2: it, it was crushing. I, I, the, Met, the Met audition came after that, and I went back to Hong Kong and told my wife, I'm not going back. You know, I, we're happy here in Hong Kong, we got a great life. And it's just too emotionally taxing to go through that. And my wife just would not take no for an answer. She just said, you know what, I I have a feeling about this. I really think you should try it one more. If this doesn't work out, you know, then we'll know it just wasn't meant to be. But I, I think you should try. And I was like, oh. And, but I did it. You know, I worked up the list, and it worked out, you know, uh, and I won't ever, I won't ever forget winning that audition because I, I, I was so crushed by getting runner up at the Philharmonic When Bob Sireneck, our personnel manager, came in to congratulate me, I couldn't really think about how happy I was. All I thought about was Mike Pretty, the war, the runner up, and I just gave him a hug and I just said, "Man, I am, I'm so sorry because I know how you feel." And it was kind of hard. It was kind of hard to enjoy. Uh, you know having the job because I just knew how crushing it was to not to not get the job, but we moved to new york so that kind of briefly opens up something I think a
0: lot of young people would like to hear about and we don't have to wax poetic about it but from you know from talking to you long conversations with you and master classes and, and talking with a lot of other people you kind of you kind of almost have a fabled. Orchestra audition preparation routine and a lot of things that I think you've just developed on your own and figured out and just a process you have. Would you mind just expounding a little bit about the unique things that you do?
2: Well, I'm not sh- I'm not sure they're unique, but I-, I can tell you this: I absolutely do everything that you've ever heard that you should do to prepare for an orchestral audition. You know, uh, beginning with getting to know the entire piece, not just the excerpt. You know. When I was sitting in Hong Kong for those six years, even though... And by the way, in Hong Kong for six years, there were no auditions. You know, it was a very dry period for auditions. But, you know, sitting there enjoying my life, I was still trying to get to know get get to know the rep even better. So I was listening. Even though I had not played all of the Mahler symphonies, I was still listening, trying to get to know the Mahler symphonies. I was, ironically, not opera as much. It was mostly symphony orchestra rep, but I was trying to get to know excerpts that i didn't know very well i was i had excerpts on a rotation uh, even though there was no audition on the horizon every day i was spending an hour i would do uh, i had i spent ten, 10 minutes on six different kinds of excerpts I, I did a low excerpt i did a high excerpt i did a fast a slow a loud and a soft if you spend 10 minutes on each one of those excerpts every day that's an hour of your practice day and uh, so I, did, I always did it with a metronome. I did it with a tuner. I had a recording device that I was uh, recording myself and listening back with. I, I absolutely did all of those things in the time when, uh, when the audition was not on the horizon. When I, when I finally did uh, have a couple of auditions to date, you know, I, again, I did exactly what everybody's teachers tells them to do. I started preparing the excerpts at a very slow tempo. I recorded, listened back with a lot of scrutiny, made lots of marks in my music. Once I got once I got the list up to speed and I was happy with how I could play the excerpts, I started doing lots of mocks. I know my my colleagues in Hong Kong got sick of me asking to do mock auditions cuz I I mean, I don't I, I didn't keep count, but I know I did probably 100 mock auditions in Hong Kong leading up to the Philharmonic and the Met Met auditions for anybody and everybody. 100 I'm sure I'm sure it was close to that. You know, uh Sometimes it was for a couple of people. Sometimes it was just for one person. Uh, and you know, I was I was trying to make myself as nervous as possible. Uh, I was I would do things like run steps or do jumping jacks in place, and then try to play. I was just trying to prepare for every scenario that I could possibly uh, think I would encounter. Uh, so I did all of that leading up to those auditions. You know, my my, but I have to say, my I have to mention my hero, which is Mark Inoway, the principal trumpet of the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. You know. What he's done with auditions, uh, and again, this is this is another podcast, I'm sure, but what that guy did over the years to prepare for his audition wins is is epic. He's really my hero. But, uh, you know, I just did all of the things that, that we're told to do. And in my experience with students, oftentimes, they don't really quite invest 100% in all of the things that they're told to do. You know, metronome, tuner, record yourself. Listen to the piece. Uh, play mock auditions. Uh, in when you don't have an audition, still continue to work on the excerpts. You know, uh, it's rare for me to meet a student that really truly invests in in those ideas wholeheartedly. It actually does them. Well, you
0: can't hear is that Nick and Paul are currently running from the yeah place. yeah New yeah. York City. We have a little
1: bit of New York uh, New York nature going on in the background. Um, yeah. So I I wanted I wanted to. Uh, get into more of what you said about, uh, students not investing a hundred percent into this process, you know, and it's not just about auditions, but just generally bettering yourself at your craft. Um, so I guess I would ask what, what, what is your daily routine look like on average? I mean, you know, you can average it out cause it's obviously not exactly the same every day. Um, and, uh, I, I guess the next point would be, what do you see in students that they are failing to do? Like if you could, if you can boil that down a little bit.
2: Wow. That's, that's a big question. Uh, I can, you know, I, I'll start by saying what I do now, considering my life is very different from what I did. I did as sure. a student, you know, when I was a student, I, I had three, and this is, this is the God's honest truth. I had three practice sessions a day. I had one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one at night. And my morning session was always, uh, I'm a a creature of habit, you know, it was always breathing and stretching, buzzing, long tones, slurs, articulation studies, and a Bordoni six or seven ways, depending on which Bordoni it was. That was my morning routine. My afternoon routine was was either those the excerpt uh, schedule that I mentioned, or it was it was solos, and then at night it was the other. It was either right. solos or excerpts, and I did that religiously for many, many, many years. And you know, I was one. I was single minded. You know, and not. I mean, I, I know video games are really popular these days, and you know, and there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of television, interesting television, a lot of t- interesting movies. I did, I really did not do any of that stuff. I I mean. My roommates had a video game console. Uh, they they loved to watch. I mean, tell, the Simpsons were on always on. But I missed I missed that whole. I missed all of that culturally mm. for my generation. I didn't see an episode of Seinfeld. I didn't see an episode of The Simpsons until way after the fact when I could like watch them. I didn't really play video games. You know, I would. My wife and I, would, girlfriend at the time, we'd go out on dates occasionally here and there. But I was so focused on just making sure every day. I did all of these things, and that—that's what I did. Now, I also want to say that recently, I've—I've I've met someone that had that who's, whos had incredible success, but had a completely different story. Our our buddy John Romero, who just won mm. principal trombone to the Metropolitan Opera. John's story is completely different. You know, he, uh, which uh, you know, I'll let him. You may have him on uh, uh, for a podcast at some point. Mm-hmm. I'll let him tell you about his story, but it's a completely different story. And you know, for for many years, I, I said, oh, my way is this is the best way. But what I, you know, what I know now is that man, there are so many different stories for how people get to where they want to be. You but know? you know, in my experience, yeah, I, I agree with you. But what
1: do you find is the common thread between successful people? Because it's not just it's not just random. You know, what do you think the common thread is between you and John Romero, for example?
2: I mean, John was he, John was pretty committed. He he loved. He loved music, obviously. He's super. He's a super gifted musician. Yeah, really. uh, uh, I think he honestly did did want, really truly want to improve. I know John is from a small town in Texas as well. I think he probably had a little chip on his shoulder as well about uh, being from a small town. I don't think his parents are musicians. My parents are not musicians. Uh, so there, there was a drive there to prove something uh, that exists between the two of us. Yeah, but we're we're pretty different. I mean, John is I think John has perfect pitch. He plays piano and guitar really well. He composes, he arranges. He's mm-hmm. uh he's brilliant. John Romero is brilliant. And you know, you know, I'm a worker bee. That's what I am. I'm I'm just I'm a, a blue-collar worker bee that got, you know, that had some success because every day I just woke up and did it, you know, as hard as I could.
1: Yeah. I mean, the one thing I know John did is he, he was I think you were telling me this or maybe John told me himself is he put all the excerpts from the met audition into uh, into like GarageBand, and it with like like he put it in like with MIDI, and it would play it back in time with absolute perfect pitch and time, so that he could play along with it for intonation, you know. And so, th- this is a, a different approach, but I mean the dedication to do that—that's that, kind of what I was getting at. I mean. I certainly don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, they're they're completely opposite success stories, ending in ending in a similar result. But the work ethic, the, the the dedication to a single cause, you know, I think these are are common threads, even if the method to get there is drastically different from person to person. You know, there's there's a period of time of intense work, you know, and um, or a whole life of intense work, depending on the person, you know. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that.
2: I agree. Yeah. I agree one hundred percent. So
1: I guess rounding up that the the second part of my original question, where or what, a couple things. It doesn't have to be one thing. Where do students lack in this process? In this in this um, quest to become a professional musician?
2: Oh man, this is. I'm going to sell. No, I want. Question, I want be... you
1: to be brutal. Well, <laughs> everyone put on your your big boy and big girl pants.
2: I mean, uh, real talk. I think there they, I mean, these days compared to you know, compared to when I was a student, there is just so many more distractions, you know, mm. with I mean, for the, for the, most of the time that I was a student pursuing a job, there were no cell phones. This yeah. I mean, I'm dating myself, but I mean, I didn't have a there, nobody had a cell phone when I was on the road. Nobody had a cell phone when I uh, when I was, I got my first cell phone at the end, kind of towards the end of my doctoral degree. That's kind of when the no, those Nokia cell phones kind of started becoming popular. So there were just way fewer distractions. Uh, you just had was, your
1: your hoop and your stick, right? Yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah, <laughs> playing in the street, uh, yeah. playing, kick the can, <laughs> playing, 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 uh, uh, pick them up sticks. But uh, you know, so I mean, I, I think that these days there, there there are a hundred different ways a student can be distracted from from the goal. And- but just, I mean, just to pause it for a second.
1: Don't you think? I mean, just to spin that slightly. These distractions. Some. I mean, yes, there's video games, which you know I I like playing video games, but I play them at night when my when my day is done. There's Netflix, Hulu. Those all fall in similar categories. Um, and we all we all watch these things. It, it depends on if they distract you from your goal or not. But other things like YouTube. Spotify or Apple Music or Tidal or whatever you use for music playing. These are also incredible tools that we didn't have. So do you think that these things that could be on in one way a distraction could also be an unbelievable asset?
2: I mean, it's a fine line, I think. Absolutely. Um, and I think discipline, the discipline to, to use it in the way – and for how much it needs to be used is is really important for that.
1: So for sure. again, the word discipline. But anyhow, continue what you're going down. So you, you say there's all these distractions. So where
2: does this lead us with the the shortcomings or the of the modern student? I'm gonna say also that I think, and I think I think we would all agree, the three of us would agree, to be successful in this business it requires that you have grit, yeah, a lot of grit. You know the the. You know, the ability to 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 live simply and to work hard and to take failure over and over and over and over and over again until, until you start finding su- success. You know, this is, again, I know this, I'm going to, I hate talking about this a little bit because I know I'm going to sound like an old fogey. But, you know, th- this generation, this point in time in human history, this is a, a quick gratification, yeah. you know, everything happens fast we want we get thing we can get things fast we can and being successful as a musician is about a long it's about being willing to for many people being being willing over a very long period of time to make slow steps forward and just be focused on a goal and it's not a quick it's not a quick fix kind of thing that that makes me
0: you know i feel like the average student has heard every good teacher say you know hard work hard work hard work hard work and i think on some level they know that what i see is wh- what is the what is the thing that's stopping them from doing that if they know that's what they're supposed to do to get what they want why is it so hard to just do
2: it do you think it's the distractions you know that's that is a question that sociologists have been doing research and trying to answer for many many years and they don't have an answer for that you know they don't i you know if you read books by malcolm gladwell if you re, if you read mm-hmm. outliers if you read uh, talent is overrated uh, yeah. you know where where does motivation come from it's really kind of hard to put it's really kind of hard to put a finger on that some people just have it for whatever reason in my case i was motivated by you know, again, that chip on my shoulder of being from a small town and, and being a really bad trombone player when I when I began, you know, it, it is it is really that's that's a tough question to answer, but it requires that you got to be super motivated, super committed to do this. And I don't know why some students don't have it, really. Well, I
1: I, I have a theory just to posit. I suppose. Um. Well, before I posit my theory, uh, talking about talent is overrated. There's a you know, if, if people haven't read that book, it's an awesome book to read just about the idea of basically hard work trumping natural talent in the in the end. And they study uh, musicians. I think it's at, at conservatories in Berlin. It's the violin studios. And they're trying to determine what makes the what makes the, the top of the best conservatory in Berlin violin students better than the worst violin students at the worst conservatory in Berlin. And what it ultimately comes down to, what it ultimately comes down to is being willing to put in nitty gritty work on the unsatisfying parts of playing. You know, for us, it would be kind of lip slurs, long tones, soft, really soft playing, things that are kind of inherently unsatisfying or frustrating to work with and living in that kind of discomfort until it becomes comfortable and finding
2: satisfaction and
1: pleasure, I guess, in things that are inherently unpleasurable.
2: You know, I've, uh, I don't know if you guys have been watching uh, Jim Markey's Instagram videos that, right. that have been going on. And, uh, Jim is, Jim pretty, is pretty Jim honest is practice. Heroes. Pretty honest practice. It really, say. really is. And it's, uh, I think Jim is, one of, if not the greatest brass player of our generation, yeah. he's definitely up there. And you know, it's 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 not it's not always perfect, you know. But he's being, as you said, he's being honest with you about the fact that hey, I have to work on these things. And you know, if Jim Markey has to wor- if he if he works like that, then everybody should work like that. You know, everybody should twice as hard, twice place. as hard as that. Yeah, game, you know. Geez.
1: So I want to I want to move on to two more questions, and then then I think we're getting close to wrapping it up. Best moments of
2: your career, playing wise. Wow, the best moments of my career. Well, it's, uh, you know, this is it, it's it's interesting. It, it's not a trombone moment, actually. It would be a bass trumpet moment. You know, I that doesn't count. This is a trombone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there were trombones present in in these ring cycles. Yeah. You know, I I think one of the one of the big shocks about coming to New York was after spending so many years focusing on bass trombone learning how to play contrabass and doing that quite a bit in Hong Kong. I get to New York, and uh, my role as a musician becomes bass trombone, but a lot of tenor trombone and bass trumpet. And uh, I got to New York right at the time when there was a need for a bass trumpet player. There was a new ring cycle being uh, put together, uh, the Robert LaPaz ring cycle at the Met, and they needed somebody to play bass trumpet. I had a history with valves and agreed to do it, and it turned out to be the greatest decision of my life because playing bass trumpet on the ring cycle is, it's, it's, it's a glorious, glorious experience. And uh, I can't pinpoint one of those performances, but, you know, getting to do that at the Metropolitan Opera uh, and also in Hong Kong, I went back and did it in Hong Kong uh, on Das Rheingold and DeValkir with Yap in the Hong Kong Philharmonic. Doing that is just, I think it's the pinnacle of brass playing. I mean, the solos and just the, the, you know, the exposure, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, I got, I had the pleasure of hearing you do that for high five. (laughs) And I got to hear you play concert. That was awesome.
1: I got the pleasure of hearing you do it for, oh, how many, three months last year or last year. Yeah. So I can say firsthand, it sounded pretty damn good.
0: (laughs) It, it, It must, it must be like all consuming. It must like just take over your life for that period of time
2: it it really does for me especially because i you know it's, it's slightly different mouthpiece and basically what i do when that's coming around i'll i'll try to do a recital in january on bass trombone and then i put down the bass trombone for the next 4 months and do i'll still occasionally have to play it but all of my practice is on bass trumpet when that comes around because it is there's there's some moments on bass trumpet in the ring cycle where you could it's a 5 hour opera and if you mess this up it's going to ruin the whole 5 hours so that ke- no it pressure. keeps you up at night. It really, really does. And especially when you throw in uh, some video cameras and a lot of microphones and the expectation. Oh, it's, it, it really does. It's, it, it can be stressful, but at the same time, grat- really gratifying.
1: Now, the last question I want to ask, um, just tying this into the reason why Sebastian and I uh, started this podcast is, you know, we, we, uh, we want to bring on multiple people, but we also wanted to bring on people who've been to the retreat. And as a person who's been to multiple seminars and you know, for years now doing things, um, why is ours the best? <laughs> <laughs> no, certainly not that. Um, but what we always like to think of ourselves as unique. We like, we, we like to be small, we, we have a different approach to what we're doing. What did you What did you like about coming to the retreat? What What did you find interesting that you can pass on to uh, our listeners that, uh, for a, to help us make a shameless plug? <laughs> well,
2: the the Third Coast Trauma <laughs> Retreat is is an incredible experience. Uh, first of all, it's in a really beautiful setting, White Whitehall, Michigan, mm-hmm. right there on Lake Michigan. It's 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 really beautiful. It's uh, in the summers. It's not not very hot, and you're right there on the water beautiful setting uh i think it's uh it's unique in that their home stays you stay with people in the community and and probably get a home-cooked meals yep. uh, and <laughs> uh, get to know the people the really generous people who open open up their homes that's that's very unique that really doesn't happen at any other festival sebastian vera and nick schwartz you guys are really fun to be around and incredible musicians and uh, so uh, you create a, a, a really fun, interesting in, uh, hang environment while at the same time providing situations where people learn a lot. You hear great concerts. You, you're, you're coached by Nick and Sebastian and the guests that they have. So it's, uh, it's a great hang, but at the same time, you, you experience a lot of great playing and you're coached by incredible mus- musicians. So uh, I enjoyed both of my times there. Well, we well, did too. That was very kind of you to well, say. Hey, thanks for the thanks it. for the
1: plug. Uh, checks in the mail. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, speaking of which, and just to, just to close, so what do you have coming up? I hear you have a couple
2: recordings,
0: perhaps in the mix. Yes,
2: uh, there. Uh, you know, at, uh, I'm I'm a complicated life right now. I'm a, a professor of trombone at the Indiana University while playing at the Metropolitan Opera. I'm going to do this as as long as I can uh, keep my body together. But at at IU, we have a great recording studio. We have a a great uh, recording department. And I'm going to try to record a couple of albums uh, in the spring. Uh, So I'm very excited about that. Uh, I have a great pianist, Kim Carballo. She's going to play. And uh, one of the trombone majors, Stefan Wiebe, is going to be my recording engineer. He's a trombone major slash recording engineering major. And he's going to do that. And uh, it's going to be a really fun summer all over Asia. China, Korea, Japan, uh, and uh, yeah, so it's it's never a dull moment in the life of Paul Pollard for sure. And how can people follow you? Uh, you know, I'm pretty I'm pretty present on social media, Instagram and Facebook. I have a website that hopefully is going to be back up soon at www. So you can I don't know that letter. Right w? W-, <laughs> w W W W W W All right. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on, Paul. It's my honor, really, and uh, it's great great to see you guys and uh, have a great retreat this summer. We will, and yeah, uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on this. And
1: this wasn't even discussed, but I'm creating our tagline right now, live and in person. Ready? I'm Nick Schwartz. I'm Sebastian Vera. Retreat yourself. Well, that was our first interview. First one. Got it in the books. It's history now.
0: We had, we had some nice soundscapes of, of New York City in the background. It sounded like you were running from the police. It was really dramatic. Maybe we were. That's how we, that's how we like to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so really cool talk. And, and I've known him for a little bit now, and, and I think you've known him a little bit longer. But definitely learned some things I didn't know about him really cool to kind of see his mindset cuz you know from the out- outside you just see this guy who's extremely accomplished and yeah. has won about every major job you can imagine and has this crazy schedule and has just such a you know his recital is one of the best recitals i've ever heard when he gave it at the retreat i think that's still up on the facebook page um, yeah it, it is uh,
1: i think both of them are up there actually from oh, good. from the yeah, what year 1718 i think he was at the retreat i think that's
0: right that's so um, long
1: ago I know, a- ancient history now for the, young, the youngins listening. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I've heard Paul probably give, uh, oh, God, six, seven recitals, you know, two of them in Michigan and then the rest here in New York. He gives a recital all, pretty much every year at the Buffet Crampon Showroom, uh, which is on 36th Street, yeah, 36 Midtown. Kind of a strange space if you've never been there. It's uh, it's very small, cramped little room and he manages to pump out a beautiful recital every year which uh you know is tough to do cuz it's a really dry tough space to play in and he plays beautifully every year. The man and likes he, to
0: play the trombone.
1: He likes to play the trombone. He, he's uh he's a work hard play hard sort of guy. Um one thing he didn't get into that I think was um missing I guess well we didn't uh, we didn't we didn't go there but you know he is both the bass trombonist of the Met and also professor at Indiana. Right. And I don't have a map in front of me, but they are not close to each other, really. Indiana and New York City. So you have to get uh, on an airplane didn't and fly You did major in geography through. at Juilliard? Um, minored. Oh, minor. Okay. okay. You have to get on an airplane and fly through the sky like a bird to go between the two. And Paul does that up to three round trips a week. He'll come here. Sometimes fly here in the morning, you know, get on like a 5.30 a.m. flight, fly in, play a rehearsal, play a show, and then go back. And sometimes he'll fly back the same day that he comes in. He'll come in just for a rehearsal. And so how he's able to keep that up is uh, pretty impressive, But while not letting the ball drop, uh, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and um, so his family's in Indiana. His right. kids are there, and he has a ton of students. So... With the Met they, they worked it out somehow, right? Where there's like a certain minimum amount of services and
1: Yeah, the Met the Met is uh, you know, I can relate well, first of all, I played there for a year, but also the ballet schedule is similar in the sense that we have a set amount of shows that we have to play a week, like a, that's our basic workload, and then there's extra shows which are not you don't have to play them. And uh, there's rehearsals, which you know it, it's it's a little complicated, but anyhow, Paul has to play four shows a week for his job, and there are seven shows every week at the at the Met, so that's why they have basically two orchestras in the Met is to cover that workload because not you don't have to play every service if you're on any chair. So Paul has worked it out that way that he plays four shows minimum you know a lot of times he'll end up playing more so that he can also go back to Indiana and teach his full studio out there every week
0: talk, of, talk about the workload at, at the Met a little bit more you described when you did your one year there you described some days where you didn't even see the sun where oh, yeah. you know, you're showing up <laughs> early I think what's the most you did in a day and, and um like an Electra and
1: the toughest day was probably when we did we had an Electra dress rehearsal in the morning, which isn't a long show. It's, it's about two hours, um, but it's real high intensity. And then at night, we did Parsifal, which is six hours and very opposite, very meditative, very introspective, very introverted in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and... You know, we had a dress rehearsal starting at, I think, 10.30 in the morning. So we were done by 12.31 o'clock, maybe. And then we had that parcel that... I think that was the night... We normally started parcels at 6 o'clock, which is an early show time. But it would get done at midnight. And I think, if, if I remember correctly, that night, we started at 7. There's one time we started at 7 o'clock. And so it got done at almost 1 in the morning. Mm. And so... You know, while you're not – I wasn't on all day. You know, I had from 1230 – I probably taught some lessons or did something. I don't know. But more more or less I had the afternoon off. But you, this is one thing they don't talk about in school is when you're a musician, yes, the hours are less than a quote-unquote nine-to-five job, but you're still – you're not off-off. You know, you have this, okay – this performance at the end of the day that's kind of looming overhead or, you know, and so even if you're off, like you're not clocked into work at that moment, you're not off the same way you would be like on a nine to five schedules weekend. Like when they're off, we don't have that schedule. We don't have on or off. It's kind of, there's a lot of in between.
0: And and when you're (laughs) working, you're, I mean, you're 100% focused on what you're doing and connecting with everyone around you. And it's such a high level of, you know, I don't want to say pressure because we've done it for so long, but it's not like you're just hanging out and like, Oh, looking at your phone every now and then and whatever you're, you're engaged. And so after a show like that, I mean, you know, break on, on the, on the opposite hand, sometimes we get lucky. For example, uh, I just got back from, I'm in Harrisburg now playing with the symphony, playing uh, Porgy and best right now, which has been pretty cool. But a couple of days ago, I went to go sub with the, the Kennedy Center Orchestra with, with our good friends, good friend Lee Rogers, who we'll talk to on this podcast soon. And they're doing Don Giovanni. And if you're not familiar with Don Giovanni, the trombone part has a famous entrance that probably isn't until the last 15 minutes of the show, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So you basically only play for 15 minutes of the opera. And, you know, how it usually works is you get paid the same as everybody else. So that would always works. <laughs> this orchestra had had two rehearsals that day, two 3-hour rehearsals, and we showed up the last hour of the second rehearsal and played for about 20 minutes and then we left before it ended. Um, sometimes it sometimes it works out. Sometimes I wish they programmed Don Giovanni every year, honestly.
1: <laughs> it's, you know, it's nice to have uh shows like that because if you're in the middle of a busy schedule, it's a it's it's not a night off, but it's a really light night. Um, but when you do come in at Gio- Don Giovanni, it, it's it's touchy, you know. It's it's very it's corral, you know. You have to play chorale with these dark chorale music from off stage. You no, know, it's just it, it's while it's very little work, it's not no work.
0: What wasn't there? You were telling me isn't there a ballet that you've done that literally has one note?
1: Yeah, it's a ballet set to the second movement of Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto. So one thing a lot of people don't know about ballet companies is I would say most of the music that you play is not originally written to be ballet music. Someone took the music and set dance to it. So we do piano concertos, we do violin concertos, we do symphonies. We do even Strauss songs. Uh, we do Viennese waltzes. All sorts of stuff that weren't necessarily intended to be ballet, but have qualities in them that a choreographer said, "Oh, this would be nice to dance to." So one of those things was the second or the second movement of the first piano concerto by Tchaikovsky. Now, there's actually some stuff to play if you play the whole concerto, but if you play just the second movement, there's one note. It's a G flat minor chord, I believe, and it's just an eighth note, pop, like that. <laughs> And for some reason, you know, like, obviously that's not enough to fill up a whole evening of ballet. This is another thing that people don't realize about playing in ballet is, you know, people will say, oh, what are you playing this week? And it's like, that's a super complicated question because, you know, in, in some given weeks, we have 14, 15 different pieces that we're playing. And that's not an exaggeration. Well, it, some of them are like, you know, full length, like Swan Lake or Sleeping Beauty or Nutcracker or Romeo and Juliet on and on and on. Or sometimes it's like these little 30-minute vignettes, and you'll have three or four of those in an evening. So in this case, uh, that ballet, the uh, the second movement of the piano concerto, is called Andantino, and you just play that. And so, so it could be paired with another piece that has trombones, but a lot of times for some reason it just works out that you'll play just that, that there'll be no trombones on other pieces. So you come into work and play literally one note and
0: <laughs> did you get someone which, to sub for you once just to get that one note that's a very valuable note
1: well what know what happened is actually our principal tremonis at the time messed up and he had taken off that show but forgot to call a sub so we're frantic it, it, he figured, he realized like an hour before the show and he lived in stroudsburg pennsylvania which is 90 miles from new york he would make that trip every day which was insane so it's not like he could just come in and do it this is like an hour before the show um and so we're frantically searching around trying to find someone to play this one note and we call a bunch of tenor trombone players and everyone was either like oh i'm on I, i'm already busy or oh my god i can't i can't make it in that amount of time like you know it's 45 minutes from right now and so what we ended up doing is uh there was a bass tromonist in new york named pat herb who uh was a an excellent is an excellent bass trombonist. He's not, He now lives out in Idaho. But I, I was like, you know, we got him. We just got to get a, a butt and a seat at this point. So, I just started calling bass trombone players because it's one note. I mean, come on, it doesn't matter if it's center. It, but I, just, I called Pat and I said, dude, we we have an emergency. Can you come and play second trombone on the on this piece? And he said, oh, second, I don't have ten I said, dude, Just bring bring a bass trombone. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you, it's literally one note. And I think he had a a. a a D flat or something. I think that's what's in the second part.
0: Imagine, imagine coming in and only having one note on the show and then you miss it.
1: It's happened. It's happened. (laughs) Uh, I, I have not done it, but, um, before my time in the ballet, uh, the brass section used to come and go from the pit much more. The pit was designed. It was, uh, set up a little differently. So the, the brass was a lot closer to the, the pit, the pit door. And so it's easier to sneak in and out. Now it's more like intrusive, like from the audience point of view. So we don't really do that, but they used to just come in the pit whenever, right before their entrance. And they just, they came in a little too late and missed it. <laughs> so it's like, whoopsies. check, please. Yeah, exactly. It's like,
0: I mean, I personally, I personally can't identify cause I've never missed a note personally, but, um, I imagine that must be difficult.
1: It's very, it's a very strange sensation. You're like, I intended to play one thing, and another thing happened. And, phew, I, it's hard to explain to someone who's never missing out. I yeah, yeah, I know.
0: So, yeah. Okay, so this is our first podcast. Uh, I think a question that you and me both get asked quite a bit is, how did we come up with this? For people interested, not just an average person on the street, but uh, how did the trombone retreat start? What is it exactly? And kind of like the brief elevator kind of description I usually give The Elevator is, pitch. Elevator pitch is, you know, Nick and I were probably on like our fifth or sixth beer at the Whole Foods bar. Which um, is
1: now closed. What? I know. I'm sorry to break it to you live That's, in front of our oh, audience.
0: God, that is tough news to swallow right now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> every time I tell this story, I think it turns into more beers. So we were on our eighth or ninth beer, and uh, ten beers deep, we're like, we should start our own trombone festival and do it our way. Um, we, we, you know, we we saw kind of a gap between the student uh, in college and the professional right. world, and graduating, and there's just so much that you have to learn by experience just making a name for yourself if you're not fortunate enough to just win a job right away. And even if you do win a job right away, there's so much you need to learn. And so, you know, we created this escape in a way in this beautiful town on the coast of Lake Michigan where Nick's family lives, white sand beaches. It literally looks like the ocean. There's deer running around, dense forest. Your, your cell phone doesn't work half the time, which is actually really nice. It's um, <laughs> true. Just beautiful houses. and just a way to kind of escape and remember the why, you know, remember why you're doing all this. And we, you know, we bring in the best trombonists from all around the world to come teach. Um, and that's a huge component, of course, you know, lessons and master classes and everything. But we t- we have a lot of talks and we just talk about building a career and <clears throat> mental approaches to playing and taking care of your finances. I think musicians should be smarter th- about their finances than the average person since often times right. we're we're not, we don't have a lot of money to play around with, so we need to be smart and think ahead. Meditation, wellness, we, we well, add stuff um, all
1: the time. To, to tie it all together with the inception and genesis of the Trombone treat Ooh, nice we words. also um, – uh, thank you. Those are my favorite words. Oh. <laughs> um, well, you know, it began with beer, and we also include And it beer. continued with beer at the trombone retreat um for those of for those who are 21 um and can drink beer they drink beer um because and i i say that jokingly but also seriously because you know even for the ones who aren't 21 they come they come out because you know it's a pub you can get food and all that stuff we'll usually hang out but the the guest artists and us will go out and it's a one other thing that we started the trombone retreat when we started talking about it was that we wanted to keep it small, and it's always been small. It's always been twenty students, and that means that you get more opportunities to have face time with not only the guest artists and the faculty and blah blah blah, but also with each other, you know, with the uh, with the other students, you know, and and kind of bounce ideas off each other. It's just it's just a, it's a fun week. It's a really intense week for sure, and I think actually yeah, one for of us the, too. Well, for us, it's real intense. Yeah, I think what actually one, wasn't one of the original uh, names that we came up with was the Third Coast Ramon Intensive.
0: Oh gosh, yeah, yeah,
1: not a great like, name, but a, a very, a very apt description of what it is. We will but learn it,
0: about the history. There will be exams. Yeah, uh, yeah, that would that sounds really intense. You yeah. and then retreat. I think I think maybe you suggested retreat idea in the shower. Where I probably all did. Ideas come from and it just it just makes sense and it it really everything's about the personalities involved uh me and Nick are you know really good friends and the people we bring are carefully chosen to fit kind of i hate to say the word vibe but fit the vibe of it's a vibe. You know, what we're doing it's a vibe so this is this podcast is branching off of that and i'm excited cuz now we can really have these conversations that we have once one week a year um, all year round and and share this information and knowledge with everyone so i think you can hear vacuum cleaners going off at my hotel now but how dare you <laughs> white noise uh but yeah look forward to many more my friend me too me too i um
1: i i think we're gonna have a good time we'll try to keep it light yet serious yet inform informative all the things that make a podcast fun
0: Yeah, and please uh once we get everything uploaded, please, you know, comment and please uh email us trombone retreat at gmail.com if you have any questions you want to ask or any suggestions. Uh we are all ears. This is for you guys. So yeah. Should we have some sweet tagline at the end like retreat yourself? Oh. Retreat yourself. I got goosebumps. Yeah, you feel that? I felt what, what if I talk really close to the mic? Retreat yourself. <laughs> we we should do ASMR. We should do five minutes oh, of ASMR to finish oh, every podcast. Retreat yourself. Everyone's just, like, like t- turning it re- off right now.
1: Yeah, maybe just chewing checks mix or something. Oh my like that. god!
0: <laughs> oh. Just buzzing your mouthpiece into the really closely.
1: Ooh, trombone ASMR. Oiling your clinky valves. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's really good actually really you're, really you're close to the valve middle. clicky 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 Do, oh my doing God. the doing your slide or doing the screw onto the, the trumpet oh it's like, like screwing the
1: slide onto the horn yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah oh man um, so, so many ideas okay let's wrap it up
1: all right have uh, a good day have a good day I'm Nick Schwartz and I'm
0: Sebastian Vera
1: oh ho ho retreat yourself Yeah. bye treat yourself